Anybody ever heard of Alfred Lord Tennyson? A few of you. Alfred Lord Tennyson was a, was a famous poet from the 1800s. And he's probably most famous for a line that came out of his poem called In Memoriam. And in this poem, Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote this. He said, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I mean, let's not think about it just on a love level. Let's think about that quote on a life level. He's saying it's better for us to, to live life and to take risks and sometimes to deal with failure in those risks than to never live life and take risks at all. So I was thinking about this this week and I was thinking, uh, uh, what does this mean? And so I looked for some other quotes and there's some, there's some other people that have said similar things. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Sidney Smith who was an author and a clergyman in England uh, back in the 1800s, and he, he wrote this. He said, Regret for the things we did can be tempered by time. It is regret for the things we did not do that is inconsolable. Some of you, some of you will say, well, 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 I connect with Lucy Ball. You know, I love Lucy. This is what I love Lucy said. She said, I would rather regret the things that I have done than the things I have not done. And I know some of you say, well, I don't know who Lucy Ball is. Maybe you know who the Red Hot Chili Peppers are. Yes, I'm quoting the Red Hot Chili Peppers in church. This is weird. They wrote, in, they wrote a song that released in 1995 called Deep Kick. And this is what one of the lines in that song said. Always said it's better to regret something you did than something you didn't do. So I started thinking about my life. I started thinking about... What are the things I regret not doing uh, in, in the past? What are some of the things that I regret? You know, one of the things I regret, you know, any, any of you guys ever watched the show 24? All right, a few of you. All right, I, I know you guys are probably thinking I've got problems, but the show 24, my wife and I, we found it on Netflix, we found it on DVD and, and we just, we, we loved it. And it was one of those things where we'd go get the DVD. Um, this is before we got Netflix and uh, uh, you go and get the DVD and there's like four episodes on a DVD. And so we'd, we'd binge watch, you know, we'd watch four episodes at a time and it was great. And so we watched all the seasons until the very last season and the very last season came out on TV. And that was the dumbest thing we ever did. We watched the, uh, the, the show every week. And that was the worst way to watch that show. That show was so much better when you could binge watch all of them together. And it was like the simultaneous day. And so I regret that we didn't wait until that season was on Netflix and watch it on Netflix. Because it would have been much better just to take a, a weekend and just stay in our pajamas and watch that show. You remember that? Would have been much better. I regret that. I, I regret... That I didn't start working out about 20 pounds ago. Anybody else feel that? I regret that I wished I would have done that sooner. Another thing I've learned to regret. I regret not buying Apple stock when they came out with the iPhone in 2007. Do you know how many iPhones there are out there? That is, I mean, I, man, uh, yeah, another regret. You know, on a more serious note. I regret that when I was in school, I didn't push myself harder. I mean, I was, I, school wasn't ever really hard for me. I mean, I could show up and things could go well. But I, because it was easy, I didn't push. 
I didn't try as hard as I could. And now that I'm older, I find that my brain isn't as sharp as it once was. And I really do wish that when I was younger, I would have tried harder and put a greater effort. Parents, you're welcome for that. I wish one of the things I regret is I regret that when my dad was still alive, I regret I didn't learn more about him. I didn't learn more about his childhood. I didn't learn more about his, his family and his upbringing. Finally, I regret last year, November, I regret that I didn't go back for seconds on Thanksgiving. I mean, like, Thanksgiving, you have one day a year where you get like those, those yams with the marshmallows on top and you got the green bean casserole. You know, one day a year you have all those things. You, I should have gone back for seconds. I still regret that. <laughs> That's a warning to you guys. Just get after it this Thanksgiving. Just get after it. But I think, I think the authors are, are right here. That sometimes... Our greatest regret isn't something we've done. I think oftentimes our our greatest regret are the things that we haven't done. Or maybe they're the things that we have not given enough time and enough attention and enough effort into. So today, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 18. I encourage you to turn there now. Uh, You can follow along on on a phone or on a tablet or on a Bible. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. Uh, We've got an usher in the back. We've got someone up here. Tony, could you grab a Bible and bring that up for us? Uh, We've been in a series the past couple couple of months now on the life of King David. And King David, uh, we've been studying, and we know that Scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. And so David, David becomes the example for us on how you and I can learn and become men and women after God's own heart. And today, today we're going to see something that I believe would have been one of David's biggest regrets. One of, one of his greatest regrets. But before I tell you what that is, I'm going to ask you just to go ahead and pray with me. God, we're just excited for the opportunity to be gathered today. We're excited to be gathered with the church. God, we know the church isn't a building, it's the people. So God, we're thankful for the opportunity be gathered with your people today. God, I pray as we open up your word today, God, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that we would continue to learn from King David. God, I pray that we would continue to learn lessons from him that apply to our own hearts and to our own lives. God, I pray that you would continue to mold each and every one of us, that we would be known as men and women after your own heart. God, this doesn't mean that we become perfect But this means that our heart is inclined to yours. Our heart breaks for the things that break yours. We desire to follow you and to be in step with you. So God, I pray for your presence on us now. I pray, God, that you would give us uh, clarity. I pray that you would give us understanding that you would just speak to us now, God. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 18. And I'm going to start reading in verse 31. And it says, and behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good news for my Lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is it well with a young man, Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, 
the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David's son, Absalom, has died. And, and obviously, David is at a point where he is out of control. Verse 33 says he was deeply moved. The original language means that his entire body w- was agitated. You can picture David violently trembling, kind of like he's having a, an uncontrollable seizure of sorts. And you've got to say, well, why, why, why is David so distraught? Well, of course his son has died. Of course there's going to be some, some, some mourning, some distraughtness for his son being uh, dead. But as I read the story of David's life, I see David overwhelmed for a, for a very different reason. I see David being deeply moved here in chapter 18 because of regret. So let me ask this. What do you think David's greatest regret would have been? We've studied the life of David for a couple of weeks now, for a couple of months now. We've, We've looked at his life. What do you think David's greatest regret would have been? We think maybe back to 1 Samuel chapter 28. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 28, that's when David decides, hey, I'm going to leave God's people and I'm going to align myself with the Philistines. I'm going to align myself with the enemy. Basically, David said, I'm going to go pitch my tent in Satan's backyard. Maybe, maybe that was his greatest regret. Or we think about last week. We think about David and, and, and all the trouble he was in with last week. We saw him, we saw him pursue an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. We saw him uh, plot to kill uh, and murder Uriah. We saw him lie and cover it up and, and all these things. I mean, that, that's got to be his greatest regret, right? The thing with these two stories is both of these are incidents in David's life. They're, 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 they're incidents in his life. They're not the whole story. They're, they're incidents that occurred throughout his lifetime. And yes, that incident with David and Bathsheba was, was horrible. And yes, yes, that incident with, with, with the Philistines, that, that, that's horrible. But I think there's something deeper at stake. Something that wasn't just an incident in David's life. Something that became a pattern. Something that was consistent throughout his life that would have been his greatest regret. I would suggest to you that one of David's greatest regrets was failing to live for the people who mattered most to him before it was too late. This is a pattern that we see that will play out throughout the life of David. He failed to invest in the relationships of the people who should have mattered most to him. And here, Absalom's son has died, and we see David completely broken. And one of the things we're going to see is David is so broken at the death of his son, but he was never broken over the rebellious and sinful life of his son. We see him more afflicted now by his son's death than he ever was by his life. But now, but now, it's too late. 
There's nothing he can do about it. See, there's a simple lesson in here for you and I. And that is that we have to live now for the people who mattered most. We have to live now for the people who matter most in our lives. I mean, we can think about David. We can think about all of his successes. We can think about David and Goliath. And what a great victory for David. We can think about David and and his military victories, his military career. He was successful as a military leader. He expanded the borders. He did all these great things. He was probably known as the greatest king. But all those things don't mean a darn at the death of his son. You strip every one of those things away. And the thing that matters most is the investment that you and I make and to the people around us who matter the most. So today, today we're going to look uh, through a couple stories in chapters 13 through 18 of 2 Sam. And we're going to cover a large portion of, of Scripture. And what I'm going to encourage you to do is because we're going to look at such a uh, big passage of Scripture, I'm going to encourage you this week, this afternoon, sometime, take a few minutes, take 20 minutes and read this entire story. It's really a great story. It's got intrigue, all sorts of things at play. We're going to look at this story today, and we're going to try and find the pattern. The pattern of how David failed to prioritize the people who mattered most to him. So, we know from Scripture, 1 Chronicles chapter 3, that David had at least 19 sons and at least one daughter. It says that David had other concubines that he had other kids with, so he had more kids than that. But the Bible specifically says he has 19 sons and one daughter. Today, the text we're going to look at is going to focus on the stories involving uh, his son Amnon, his son Absalom, and his daughter Tamar. So chapter 13. Chapter 13. The first thing we're going to see is we're going to see that David failed uh, to provide accountability for the people who mattered most. Chapter 13, we read the story of Amnon and Tamar. Now, Amnon and Tamar, these are our half-brother and half-sister. They have the common dad of David, but they have different mothers. And the story says, the beginning of the chapter says that Amnon fell in lust for Tamar, his sister. He, he, he lusted after her and became consumed with her to the point that it was controlling his life. Now, let me just say, that's gross. All right? I got a sister. I love her. But that's gross. Okay? And, and it was gross in that day. It was something that shouldn't have happened. And so, and so he has this, this being overconsumed with this lust for his sister. And, and Amnon, he's got this friend by the name of Jonadab. Jonadab. And Jonadab is described by, in the Bible as being a crafty man. And, and, and Jonadab says, hey, Amnon, I see you so consumed with your sister. Let me help you craft a plan to, to, to deal with this. And so, and so they, they come up with a little ruse together, and this is what happens. Amnon pretends to be sick. He pretends to be sick, pretends to be bedridden. And he's, he's, he's at the point where, where that's pretty sick to be bedridden. So finally, King David comes and, and comes to check and see how Amnon is doing. And Amnon says, oh, Dad, I'm so sick, Dad. Dad, 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 I know you're really busy, Dad. You've got to go do king stuff. So, so, Dad, would you do this? Would you send my sister Tamar? Would you send her in to come and take care of me? 
Come have her, come have her fluff my pillow and come have her make me some chicken noodle soup and, and, and come have her put Netflix on the TV for me and, and come have her take care of me, dad. And David says, sweet, that's easy. So he calls Tamar, Tamar, Tamar comes over, makes a chicken noodle soup, comes in to, to Amnon's room and Amnon sends all the other servants out. And Amnon grabs onto Tamar and he forcibly rapes her. This is a, not a fun story. After raping, though, raping her, though, his, his, his lust is fulfilled. And that lust then turns into an intense hatred. And he has this intense hatred for his sister. And he kicks her out of the house. And she runs away disheveled and in tears, a bitter woman. But that's not the point of the story. That's not what I want to zero in on. I, wanna, I want you to see what happens next. In verse 20 of chapter 13, it says, Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, has he been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother, brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. That's a good brother. It's a good brother. He's concerned for his sister. But what about David? What's David going to do when he finds out? Verse 21, it says, When David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom said, ne- never said a word to Amnon, neither good or bad. He hated Amnon because he disgraced his sister, Tamar. Did you see that? Did you see what happened there? Maybe, maybe you blinked and you missed it. Let me, let me read it again. It says, verse 21, when King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he disgraced his sister, Tamar. See, David, we've known David to be a man of honor. We've known David to be a very honorable man. We can think back to 2 Samuel chapter 1. After King Saul has died, there's a servant that comes up and, and takes credit for killing Saul, thinking, hey, I, this is David's enemy. I'm going to take credit, and David's going to be proud of me. And what does David do? David has that young man uh, killed because he took vengeance against God's anointed. He says nobody's going to lay a hand on God's anointed, even though, even though Saul deserved it. Even though Saul was a bad man, even though Saul deserved what happened, David said nobody is going to be rewarded for taking vengeance on, or on, on, on God's anointed. And so David had that man killed. So I'm looking at this story, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something from David. Like, David, David, go comfort your little girl. Go put your arm around her and tell her you love her. Tell her it's going to be okay. I'm looking for David to go to Amnon and, and just bust some chops. Like, 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 that's not acceptable. That doesn't happen. Like, like, do something, David. Kick him out of the house. I mean, Amnon was, was the next in the royal line to become king. I mean, kick him out of the royal line. Do something, David. But verse 21, it says that when David heard this, he was furious. And that's it. There's no comforting his daughter. There's no disciplining Amnon. There's no chastising Amnon. There's no condemnation to what Amnon has done. There's silence. See, I know our, our 
society, our culture, has changed the idea of discipline. We're told that if we really love our kids, then we shouldn't administer discipline because that might affect their self-esteem. I know we're, 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 we're told and we believe the lie that if we set boundaries for our kids and we hold them accountable to what we know to be right, if we do those things, then we lose our relationship with our kids. And so we don't want to hold our kids accountable. We don't want to set boundaries for them. We don't want to remind them of what God's word says because we might lose the relationship with them. And so we become silent. Maybe, maybe we are like David. And maybe we're too guilty. I mean, David had his own sexual sin. He had his own problem. Maybe he's saying, who am I to say anything to my son when he's had the same kind of sin that I've had? But here's the thing. Living now for the people who matter most, it means we don't just stand idly by. When the people we love wander into dark places, and into sin. The most unloving thing that we can do is be silent as we see them make a shipwreck of their life. And especially, especially if we've struggled and sinned in the same way, we should know the danger that comes from that sin. We should be the first one to say, hey, watch where you're going. I know where that goes. It leads to a dangerous place. God's word speak so differently about our responsibility for the people we love. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. What's amazing about that psalm, that verse, that proverb, is that proverb was written by Solomon. He's probably the wisest man who ever lived who also just happens to be another son of David. You can imagine Solomon writing that proverb as he's thinking about what he saw unfold with his brothers while he was growing up, as he saw his dad fail to administer any sort of accountability, any sort of discipline on his big brothers, and the shipwreck that it made of their life. The story continues, and we'll see the second area that David fails. He fails to prioritize time with the people who matter most to him. See, after this happened, Absalom, he's filled with rage. He's filled with rage against uh, Amnon. I mean, how could you do this to my sister? And not only is he filled with that rage for Amnon, he's filled with rage for David. I mean, David, you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything here, David. What's wrong, Dad? You should have done something. And so, so it says for two years, for two years, Absalom never talked to his brother Amnon. And during that two years, he is, he is conniving a plan. He's coming up with a plan that he can give justice to Amnon. That he can deliver punishment for what Amnon has done. Story says in verse 23, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Verse 23. And it says, After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all of the king's sons. And Absalom, here he goes, he says, He came to the king and he said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant, inviting him to come along. But the king said to Absalom, 
No, my son, let us not all go, lest we become burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why would he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. When I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. When all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Let me ask you this question. If Amnon is plotting to murder his brother Amnon, why would he have invited King David? If he's going to go and try and murder his brother wouldn't having King David there, wouldn't that prevent that? I mean, there's no way he's going to kill his brother when, when dad's there watching. Dad's going to get in the middle of it. That's what dads do. See, I think Absalom, I think he grew up with a certain pattern. I think he understood how things worked. I picture David in his office and, and in comes Absalom with a football, tossing it up and down. Hey, dad, you want to come outside and throw the football around with me? No, son, I'm, I'm too busy. I picture Absalom coming in. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. The Star Wars movie has come out. You, you want to go watch the movie with me today? No, not now, son. I picture Absalom coming in. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. I've got the championship soccer game this weekend. Dad, I've got a soccer game this weekend. Would you come and watch me? Son, I'm the king. I've got things to do. I can't. Be there this weekend. I think Absalom invited David as a ruse, knowing that David would say no. Because that's his expectation. That's how he grew up. That was a pattern he understood. I think Absalom invited King David just so that King David would think everything was fine, that there was no ill intentions behind Absalom's plan. See, what's interesting, David is known as a great psalmist. He wrote 75 psalms. Not one of those psalms is about his, any of his kids. We think about King David. We think about his life and his story. Have we read any stories about David and any of his kids? No. They're not in the story. So after David says, no, Absalom says, well, what about Amnon? Can, can my brother come with us? Again, if David spent time with his kids, don't you think he would have known that Absalom and Amnon haven't spoken in two years? Don't you think if he would have spent time with his kids, he would have known about the rift that's happening between these two brothers? But he doesn't. So Absalom convinces David to let Amnon come along. And while they're out, Absalom gets Amnon drunk. And he and his servants, they murder Amnon. You might not know this. I know some of you are English majors and that sort of thing. Do you know how love is spelt? Love is spelt T-I-M-E. Love is spelt time. This is true. You think about a parent. You want to know how you have influence in your kids' lives? You earn it through time. 
And I'm not just talking about quality time. I'm talking about, about hanging out time. I'm talking about downtime. I'm talking about any time. That is how you, you earn the influence of the people that matter most to you. You know, and, and something even beyond just, just your kids. You know, as Christians, we're called to make disciples. We're called to, to be about the mission of God. And, and most of us would say, yes, we have a desire to reach our neighbors. I have a desire to reach my coworkers for Jesus. I have a desire to reach my families for Jesus. You want to know how you have influence over them? You have to invest time in them for your voice to have an influence. You have to invest time. See, if you continue reading this story, once again, there's no discipline for Absalom. There's no discipline for him murdering his brother. It says David mourns for his son, but there's no attempt at discipline. Absalom, he runs away and flees to Geshur, and he stays with his grandpa on his mom's side. And for three years, Absalom and David are separated for three years. Verse 39 of chapter 13 says that David, he, he longed to go out to see his son every day. But as David's pattern has been, he does nothing about it. He is passive. He is not active. His heart longs for it, but there's no action. And this leads to David's third failure in prioritizing the people who matter most to him. That's a failure to forgive. See, in chapter 14, David's secretary of state, so to speak, Joab, he works a ruse to convince David to let Absalom come back to Jerusalem. He says, David, you've got to let him come back. And he works this ruse and he involves this lady and, and she convinces David to, to bring his son home. And this is what it says. Chapter 14, verse 21. And then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Sure, sure, David allows his son to come back to Jerusalem. He allows him to come back to the city, but there's no forgiveness. He says, you know what? He can come back, but I don't want to see him. I don't want him in my presence as long as I don't have to see him. Now, we need to understand and that day, Jerusalem was a small town. I mean, it required intentionality that the two didn't see each other. It required planning. You had to be intentional about when you did your grocery shopping at Costco. So you don't accidentally run into each other. You had to be intentional about where you went to lunch because you don't want to run into each other at Red Robin after lunch because that would have been exactly what the king did not want. The story says this occurs for two years. For two years, they live in the same town, but never see each other. Finally, finally, Absalom, he can't stand it anymore. He can't stand it. And so he burns his neighbor's field in order to get his dad's attention. This is what happens when we don't give our kids attention. We don't forgive them. They burn the field to get our attention. 
So he burns the neighbor's field. And he goes into the king and he says, King, you've got to do something. Dad, you've got to do something. Either punish me and discipline me or forgive me. But this standing in the middle, this standing idle doesn't work. Do something, David. So David says, fine. Gives him a kiss and says, I forgive you. You have to wonder, why did David fail as a father? I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. David could defeat giants. David could lead armies against the enemies, no matter how strong. David could take the stronghold of Jerusalem. Why couldn't David raise his kids? Perhaps, perhaps he was just too busy. He was too important. He had too many other things going on. He's got a lot of responsibility. I mean, that doesn't change the fact that his kids need him. Maybe, maybe David was just ignorant. Maybe David didn't know how to be a dad. Maybe he, he just didn't know what to say. He didn't know, know how to interact with kids. There's opportunities for that. There is mentoring. There is coaching. There is other people who can teach you. There's books. There's all sorts of ways for you to learn how to be a parent. Maybe David failed because he was too guilty. I mean, after his horrendous sin with Bathsheba, maybe he felt like he had no voice or no right to say anything to his kids. I mean, who was David to confront Amnon about his sexual sin when David had his own sexual sin? Who was David to confront Absalom for the murder of his brother when David had committed murder himself? But whatever the reasoning, the effect of his passivity, the effect of his failures, the effect of his absence ends up having tremendous consequences for his family. After all these years of passivity, after David not providing accountability, after David not giving his time, after David not forgiving, Absalom is filled with bitterness. He despises his father. How can my dad lead a country when he can't lead our family? So his bitterness and his anger, it leads to a rebellion. Chapter 15 tells a story about the rebellion. It says, for four years, David would sit, or excuse me, Absalom would sit at the, the, the gates to the city. And he began to steal the hearts of the people away from David. As the people came into the city seeking David for counsel, Absalom would be there and he would greet them and he would hug them and he would kiss them. And he would begin to say bad things about his father, things that were either not true or highly exaggerated. And he suggested, you know, if I was king... I'd be a better judge. I'd be a better counsel for you. And slowly, over the period of four years, Absalom begins to steal the hearts away from the people to him instead of David. Eventually, Absalom goes down to Hebron and he gathers all the people and he convinces the people to anoint him king over Israel. So chapter 15, verse 13 says this. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us and bring down ruin on us and strike the city on the edge of the sword. David, David knows he's lost the throne. He knows he has lost the, the, the kingdom. 
And David makes the decision to escape the city he loves because he knows that Absalom is going to come and attempt to take his life. Verse 30. Verse 30 says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. He's on his way out of the city. He went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went and barefoot with his head covered. Why is David weeping here? Some would suggest David is weeping because he's, he's, he's lost the city, the city he loves. He's lost Jerusalem. I would suggest David is weeping because he realizes he's lost his son. He was too passive. He was too absent. He was too quiet. And now he is too late. The story unfolds. Uh, David on the run, he, he builds a small army. And, and Absalom's rebellion is squashed when Absalom, he's got this long flowing hair, kind of like someone whose name I'm not going to mention in the back. Uh, he's got this long and flowy hair and he's riding on his horse and his hair gets stuck in the thicket, gets stuck in the bushes and he's hanging there. And, and Joab and Joab's armor barriers, they come and they kill Absalom, hanging in the tree from his hair, ending the revolt. Two men, they run back to where David was waiting, where David was standing, lookout, waiting for the word of how the battle went. And the news comes in. We've won the battle. The enemy, your son, has been defeated. And once again, we read David's response. Chapter 18, verse 33. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. David is more afflicted by his son's death than he ever was by his life. He wished he could do something now, but now it's too late. So what are we supposed to take away from this passage? I come back to that simple phrase we said at the very beginning. We have to live now for the people who matter most to us. We have to live now for the people who matter most to us. I mean, we think about the example that God set for us. I think we would all agree, yes, God loves us. Yes, we matter to God. And we look at his example and we see a couple of things. We see that, that God provides accountability for us. We see that when we delve into sin, there is discipline for us. When we choose to sin, there is discipline waiting for us. That's what happens. We see that God, in that accountability, he provided boundaries for us. That's what this book is. God has said, hey, I know how you're going I know, to, I know how life works. If you want life that goes well, just listen to my word. There's principles in here that help your life to go well. Listen to my word. Obey what it says. What about, what about time? Has God given us his time? I'd say God has done better. He's given us his presence. His Holy Spirit fills us and rests on us. There's not a moment that he is not accessible to us. Any time of the day, any circumstance... He's given us that promise. I will never leave you. What about, what about forgiveness? 
What about the forgiveness that God has given us? God gave us an amazing amount of forgiveness. He loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to the cross to promise and to buy our forgiveness. He sent his son Jesus to the cross to pay our penalty for sin so that we could be forgiven in his eyes. Has he forgiven us? A greater debt than we could forgive anybody that's done wrong to us. God's set the example of what it looks like for us to live now for the people who matter most. So for you and I, what do we do here? I would say if you're going to live now for the people that matter most to you, if you're going to live now for your family, for your close friends, I would even say for our church, for the people that you that matter to you, if you're going to live now for them, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to be willing to provide accountability. You've got to be willing to, to have discipline, to, ha- to, to set boundaries. You've got to be willing to, to have the hard conversations where they need to be had. I mean, the most loving thing that we can do is have those hard conversations even when it's difficult. Even when we're fearful of how the other person will respond. It is scary, yes. But what's going to leave you with greater regret? Saying the wrong thing or not saying anything at all? I would say, David would say, I wish I would have said something long ago. Secondly, we have to spend time with the people who matter most to us. Because honestly, your accountability, your accountability means nothing if you haven't invested the time into that relationship. If you fail to invest your time in those people that matter most to you, you will not have any influence over them. Thirdly, are you willing to forgive those people who matter most to you? Makes me think about how big of a deal is is unforgiveness. How big of a deal is that? How many of us harbor unforgiveness towards people who are supposed to matter the most to us. This is such a big deal that Jesus said something pretty drastic in Matthew chapter 6. He says, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness isn't just an option. It is expected. It is mandatory. If we want to experience God's forgiveness over us, we then have to extend that forgiveness to others. Let me just say, if you are on the receiving end of this, you say, well, well what about me? I've got somebody who is, who is pursuing time with me. I've got people who love me, people who, who, who are providing accountability to me, people who forgive me. Praise God for them. Praise God you have people around you who are living now for you, who care about you, who care about the outcome of your life. Because I'll tell you what, it is better to live now for the people that matter most to us than to be at their death, to experience their death and have a lifetime of regret because we failed to live for them now. I would hate to be like David and have more grief over their death than we ever had over the way that they lived while we still had influence. Because I'll tell you what, for David, for David, it's too late 
for him to restore the relationship to his son. But for you and I, it's not too late. It's not too late. Would you pray with me? God, this is just a challenging word today. Thank you for what we can learn from the life of David. Thank you for the many positive examples that David set for us. That we can learn how to keep our eyes on you. That we can learn how how giants don't have to defeat us. How we can learn that strongholds can be overcome. But God, I pray that you'd help us to learn from this message today. God, I pray that you would help us to live now for the people who matter most to us. God, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us conviction. God, I know there are some in here today. I know that their step is to say, you know what? I need to provide accountability for somebody in my life. Your step is you can picture that person that you need to have that conversation with, that you need to have that warning, that you need to say what you're doing is not okay. I I wonder how many of you in here today would say, this is my next step. I can think of my mind, that person I need to have that conversation with. And it it may be hard, it may be difficult, but that's my next step today. I need to provide accountability for the people that I love. How many of you would raise your hand and say, that's my next step? I can picture that person that I need to take and have that conversation with. I see that hand. How many of you would say, my next step is I need to check my time. I need to do an inventory of my time. You see, where it is I'm spending my time and whether I'm actually investing in the people who matter most to me. Because there comes a time they're no longer here. You no longer have that opportunity. How many of you would say, man, I, I really need to work on investing my time in the right people in the right places. How many would raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me for that? I see those hands. I see those hands. How many of you would say, man, there's unforgiveness in my heart. There's unforgiveness that I'm holding on to because of what's happened because of how they've treated me, because of what they've done. I haven't been willing to extend to them the same grace that God has extended to me. How many of you would say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Would you pray that I would have the strength to forgive, that God would work in my heart in that regard? How many of you would say, that's my next step? Let me see the raising of your hand. I see those hands. I see those hands. God, I pray that today you would do a work in our heart. That God, we would learn from the life of David. That we would learn how to live a life that is free from regret. That God, we would step into these areas. That God, we have been given a voice. We've been given influence over the people around us that matter most to us. God, I pray that you help us to live now for them. That God, we would, would, would have those hard conversations because we care about the outcome of their life, because we wouldn't want to see them make a shipwreck of their faith. 
God, I pray that we would be willing to sacrifice our time for ourselves so we can invest in those people that matter the most to us. And God, I pray most importantly that you help us to have a heart of forgiveness. That we would be willing to extend that same grace that we've been given to you. God, I thank you that we have received that forgiveness. That God, you've been willing to forgive us of our sins. That you sent your son Jesus to the cross to buy that freedom, to buy that forgiveness. God, I pray if there's anybody in here today who has not received that forgiveness, that today would be the day that they would cry out and say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for what I've done, but God, I cry out to you today. God, I need you as my savior. I I, I cry out, and God, I want to receive that forgiveness. What Jesus did on the cross for me. God, we love you. We praise you for who you are. Pray, God, as we have the opportunity to respond to your word, I pray that we would do just that. Some of us just need to spend time in prayer. Prayer with the things going on in our hearts and the things going on in our lives. Some of us just need to stand and, and worship God for who you are. That you are worthy. That you are the perfect example of everything. That, God, we have a relationship with you and we would praise you for that God I pray for your spirit to continue to move right now that you would lead in our hearts and we ask this in your holy and precious name Amen